Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. For today's podcast, we welcome back Glenn Stone, Professor of Sociocultural Anthropology and Environmental Studies here at Washington University in St. Louis. Previously on Hold That Thought, Professor Stone has talked about sustainable farming practices around the world and the history of industrial agriculture. Today, the topic is biotechnology. Professor Stone will describe his research into genetically modified crops in the developing world with a focus on India. So India has been a particularly closely watched country in the whole biotech debates. And one of the reasons is that uh, the whole world has been very concerned with the issue of GM crops for the developing world. And both uh, the biotech industry has been pushing this and also um, GMO opponents are also very concerned with impacts in the developing world. So in terms of GM crops actually being adopted in the developing world, um, there are two major countries that have been adopting GM crops. In both cases, it's cotton, and um, one of them is China, and the other is India. There's also a lot of, I should mention, a lot of GM soybean grown in Brazil and Argentina, but that's mostly large farmers. In terms of small farmers, it's mainly India and China. And so the crop being grown in India is BT cotton, and it's been grown since 2002. You might be wondering, why is it important to talk about genetically modified cotton in a series that has so far been mostly focused on food? The two ideas are related, as Dr. Stone explains. Yeah, arguments over GM crops have been joined at the hip with arguments about feeding the world all along. And India has been a, a great example of this. And India, of course, is a place that we oftentimes think of when we think of the role of new technologies in feeding hungry populations. India is the place where we had the, the main site for the Green Revolution. And so when India was grappling with its first GM crop, it was, it was cotton, so it's not an edible crop, but still people were talking about feeding the world. Not that they were going to be eating the cotton, but because the cotton was sort of a trial balloon. Let's see if the technology works in general, and if so, then we should be able to use GM foods to help feed India. And it's important to note that India is far and away the hungriest country on the planet. Um, there are indexes of, of numbers of hungry people, and India doesn't even have a close second. And so it's, it's easy to look at India and assume that it must be really short on food, because why else would it have far and away the most hungry people on the planet? The fact of the matter is there's not really a food shortage in India. They don't have a food problem in India. They have a poverty problem in India. And India has got, in some senses, a food surplus. India has what, what they call buffer stocks, where they buy mainly rice and wheat from farmers and keep it in government granaries by the tens of millions of tons. And the buffer stocks are oftentimes sold off at reduced rates to poor people. And they keep a very large amount in the buffer stocks, but nevertheless, they keep buying wheat and rice even when they've got as much food as they need in the buffer stocks. And over the past 10 years, as India has been arguing about GM crops, its buffer stocks have gotten to over 41 million tons 
over the amount they actually want and the amount they can actually store. And the food is rotting by the millions of tons, literally. And this is a, it's well known in India. It's a front page controversy that comes back year after year. Just last year, there were major headlines about how we need to have an investigation and who's to blame and how many millions of tons really are rotting and why can't we manage this better and so on. So India does have a real problem with hunger and it does have a real food problem but the two are not directly connected. So whether or not GM technologies will help produce more food is one question, but even if they do help produce more food, it's an interesting question to ask, how will that actually feed hungry people if you already have the world's most hungry people and 41 million tons of excess food? So clearly the idea that genetically modified food will solve world hunger problems is at best complicated. But let's go back for a minute to the second-to-last question Dr. Stone just proposed. If BT cotton was supposed to be sort of a trial balloon for whether or not genetically modified foods increase crop production, what are the results? Does it work? It's strange that we've been asking that question and we've been researching that question for 10 years now, and we still really don't have a good answer. And one of the problems is that there have been a lot of studies by agricultural economists that do something that seems pretty straightforward. You go into an area and you compare the farmers who are growing BT with the farmers who are growing non-BT, and you see who's producing more. But it's complicated by the fact that the farmers who are growing BT are not a representative, a random sample. They are early adopters. And early adopters, we have found over and over again, tend to be farmers who are high-producing farmers anyway. And so we would expect the early adopters to be producing more cotton than the late adopters. And so when you go into a village and you find out that the early adopters of BT are producing more, it doesn't really tell you that much about the BT cotton. So there's been dozens of studies now comparing BT cotton farmers to conventional cotton farmers. And not all of them, but the great majority of them, have shown that BT cotton has produced more than conventional cotton. But again, they're basically biased studies, with very few exceptions. Of all the studies that have been done, I think there probably are three that, that get around the bias. And in those three cases, they all show moderate, not very high, but low to moderate increases in yields based on uh, adopting BT. Despite these uncertain results, India has been in the process of introducing its first genetically modified food, which would be eggplant. There it's called brinjal. Like the BT cotton, genetically modified eggplant would have a gene that helps protect against certain insect pests. But the introduction of the eggplant has been highly controversial. A few years ago, it looked like everything was moving forward, and the eggplant was going to be approved as India's first genetically modified food. But at the last minute, the environment minister decided to delay release. So after the environment minister decided to postpone the release of the BT eggplant, um, there was a, a lot of hue and cry about it. And he was criticized as not having the science on his side. But in fact, one of the biggest complaints that he was dealing with came from the state of Kerala in southern India. And one of the reasons that Kerala felt very uncomfortable with the release of the BT eggplant 
was that there is a very large and thriving Ayurvedic medicine industry in Kerala. And Ayurvedic medicine likes to look at the entire plant rather than just looking at specific ingredients or nutrients or toxins or active ingredients in the plants. And so the whole Ayurvedic medicine establishment basically rejected uh, the findings that were coming out of some biology labs that were suggesting that the uh, very specific studies of the ingredients in the, B, in the BT brinjal uh, indicated that it was safe. The Ayurvedic medicine establishment wanted to look at entire plants. And so uh, to them, it was basically a different plant, and they were, uh, they were very unenthusiastic about it. So in addition to the controversies within India over the introduction of Bt eggplant, the wider worldwide scientific community is closely watching the issue. So what's potentially good about the eggplant? Who's for it? And what are some of the reasons to be cautious? Let's hear an overview of the debate, including Dr. Stone's own research findings. Well, on a strictly agronomic level, it protects against uh, certain bugs that eat eggplant crops. And so there's an agronomic argument for it. And uh, some biologists are very pro. On the other side of the fence, there are a lot of um, NGOs or non-government organizations that are opposed to GM crops in general. There are concerns that the technology might be changing too quickly. And this is one of the things that I've been looking at in my own research, is the impacts of rapidly changing technology on how farmers actually run their farms. So from an American standpoint, we tend to be uh, very enthusiastic about technology and great producers of agricultural technology. And to us, the idea of the latest technology for the farmer seems just to be a no-brainer. You almost always want the latest technology because it's probably going to be the best. But when you look at how farms operate in developing countries, and especially small farms, you see that the latest technology has can have pros and cons. And the pro oftentimes is that if the farmer is willing to pay a little bit more money for the technology, it can jack up their output a little bit. But there can also be some cons. There can be some downsides to it. And so one of the things that I've been looking at closely is how does it affect farmers' abilities to run their farms when the technology is changing really quickly? And so we've seen this in cotton production, where the number of seeds that come out is, is extremely, um, new seeds come out really quickly and technologies change really quickly. And my data show that this is causing a fair amount of instability in farmers' abilities to absorb new technology and to run their farms. And so this may be an issue if we start putting uh, more and more biotech technologies into foods like eggplant. To wrap up our conversation, I asked Dr. Stone to bring this issue a bit closer to home. BT cotton also exists in the U.S., but as he explains, the circumstances here are much different than they are in India. The great majority of Indian farmers are really small farmers, and a typical amount of land being planted to cotton would be one or two acres. And in the U.S., if you're planting 100 acres to cotton, you'd be considered a small farmer. So our farmers here are, are much larger they're uh, much more capitalized, and they're vastly more subsidized. Uh, we have a very lavish subsidy system for cotton farmers here, a huge safety net that Indian farmers don't have. So one thing that means is that farmers in this country have got more latitude to experiment with technology. And the other thing it means is that if the BT seeds cost more, they usually can absorb that cost pretty easily. Where it's more of a blow to the Indian farmer to have to pay extra money for the BT seeds. 
But ecologically in this country, there's actually been a lot of good news in terms of the impacts of Bt cotton. It not only has helped farmers fight certain insect pests, but also in areas where there are large amounts of Bt cotton growing in the U.S., it's reduced the populations of some of the worst pests. In other words, it's killing off the pest, not just in the farmer's field who's planting it, but regionally it's killing off the pests. Particularly, there's a nasty caterpillar in the West called the pink bollworm, which Bt cotton gives protection against. It kills, uh, it kills pink bollworms. And uh, the actual, the overall populations of pink bollworms is dropping now. We've got a couple of studies that show that. So ecologically, at least in the U.S., uh, the news is better than, than we would have even expected, I think, with Bt cotton. In India, the jury is still out. We're not really sure. Um, it's hard for us to measure how it's done compared to conventional cotton. And also, it's a moving target. It keeps changing really quickly. Bugs are adapting to the Bt technology at the same time that companies are developing new technologies to try to fight the bugs. So it's, it's a moving target. Many thanks once again to Glenn Stone for contributing to Hold That Thought. Professor Stone writes about food, farming, and biotechnology on his blog, Field Questions. You can find a link on the Hold That Thought website. We're at thought.artsci.wustl.edu. That's thought.artsci.wustl.edu.